Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, let's turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we look at the conclusion of the Ten Commandments tonight. Uh, We're going to finish things up. Start with, thou shalt not have any other gods besides God. That's the first commandment, but that's not how the Ten Commandments start. (laughs) How does Exodus chapter 20 start? It starts with gospel, and then it gets to the law, which is very important that we get that order correct, that the gospel comes before the law. So let's read... Um, verses 1 through 3, and this is a review from everything we've done over the past 10 weeks, actually 11 weeks. All right, so here we go. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay? So God is first of all saying, I am your God. I'm the Lord. I'm the covenant God. And what have I done? I've liberated you from slavery in Egypt. I brought you out. I've saved you. How did God save them through Egypt? Through the blood of a lamb at the Passover. He's delivered them. So God's already saved them. God's already called them to be his own people. And now after he's called them to be his people, after he's already saved them, after the gospel has been announced in salvation through the blood of a lamb, then he gives the law. Okay, so let's read the commandments. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. There's the Ten Commandments right there. This is the very first time Israel had heard this. Now let's just do a little bit of of backtracking. Where is Israel when this is being delivered? They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay? And what happened before, three days before? God showed up in a cloud. God showed up in thunder and lightning and said, prepare yourself because I'm going to give you the law. And God gives them the law. Okay, let's look at verses 18 through 21 and see what happens right after they hear this law. 
Okay, verse 18, this is right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. This is the very first time you heard this. It's brand new. God has spoken from the mountain. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, so how does Israel respond after hearing the Ten Commandments. What does it say there in verse 18? They were afraid, they trembled, and they stood far off. So here's the question. Why were the Israelites so terrified after God gave them the Ten Commandments? God, in these ten words had just demanded their total allegiance to Him in every aspect of their lives. Every aspect of their lives. Total, absolute devotion, obedience, unqualified. These these big ticket items God is requiring of them. And they also understood that failure to give this ultimate worship and obedience to God would result in judgment. Now, how do most people respond to the Ten Commandments today? When you, when you, when something, like when the Ten Commandments, like when somebody walks into a courthouse and they walk by and the Ten Commandments are still on the courthouse wall, do they walk by, do they stop and they look and they go, oh my goodness. Do they tremble and get afraid? No, they don't. They just walk by, okay, These Israelites understood this was God's absolute demand on their lives for allegiance. Now, it's a little bit different because they're at the base of the mountain and they see the clouds and the smoke and it's it's terrifying. But what do they do? What, What do they request of Moses? What do they say to Moses? Look at verse 19. They said to Moses, we want you to speak to us. Don't let God speak to us, because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. So what they want Moses to be is what is called a covenant mediator. A mediator is a go-between. So think about this. Okay, so like on, think about the Grand Canyon for a minute, okay? A big hole in the ground, okay? You've got a holy God on one side, and you've got sinful Israel on the other side. And Israel knows that if they try to draw near to this God, if they try to get close to this God, they're going to die. There's such a huge gap between Israel who knows that there's no way they can live up to that law and God who demands perfection. So what do they ask? We need a what? We need a bridge, a mediator. So who's the mediator they ask for? Moses, you're close to God. Moses, you've been up on the mountain. Moses, you be our representative. You be our mediator. You go speak to God on our behalf and then let God speak to us through you. 
And so that's what they're asking for. They were so afraid of direct contact with the holy God that they wanted a covenant mediator. Now, God had already set them set Moses apart as a covenant mediator. Go back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 for a moment. In Exodus chapter 3, we won't read the whole passage, but this is the burning bush. And this is where God showed... Remember Moses is on the backside of nowhere? He's been hanging out with his father-in-law, and he's just back there... Uh, Jethro, he's he's on the backside of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's on the side of the mountain and the bush starts flaming and not burning up, and then God speaks out of the bush. I pick up in verse 13. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So, In chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus, God calls Moses to be this covenant mediator, to be the go-between, to be the spokesman, to represent the people. And so Moses does that. What does Moses do in response? So look there in verse 19. The first thing that Moses does is he spoke to the people on behalf of God. Could any average Israelite just barge into the presence of God? No. Moses could do that. And so what does Moses say to them? Don't fear. Don't fear. Deuteronomy 5.5 While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. While I stood between you and the Lord. Moses stood between the people and the Lord. And what's the first message that Moses tells them? What's the first thing out of his mouth? Do not fear. Don't fear because you're God's people. God has saved you. God has rescued you. God has called you. He's giving this to you as your law. But you don't need to be afraid. God's not going to kill you. I'm, I'm the mediator here. So the first thing Moses does is he talks to the people and he gives them a message of hope. Now, what's the second thing he does? In verse 21, Moses draws near to God on their behalf. Look at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Could any Israel walk into that thick darkness? Only Moses could walk into that. Only Moses could represent the people. Only Moses could talk to God directly in that sense that he had that that mediator role. Now, here's the question. If the Israelites were terrified simply by hearing the law, how much more terrifying would it actually be to break this law. So they're afraid just to hear it. What do most people think when it comes to the Ten Commandments? When you talk to somebody, what do they normally say? Have you killed anybody? No. Have you committed adultery? Well, no. Have you lied? 
yeah, but everybody lies, so I'll give myself a half a half a point there. Have you stolen anything? Maybe a small thing like a pencil or something, but not, I never robbed a bank. Check that off. Most people, when you talk to them about the Ten Commandments, what do they say? Compared to everybody else, I'm pretty good. How do the Israelites feel about the Ten Commandments? Just They were scared because they looked at these ten laws and thought to themselves, there's no way I can keep these. And here's the bottom line. After having ten lessons on the Ten Commandments, here's the bottom line. It is impossible for us to actually obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Especially if you take the second way we've looked at the Ten Commandments as far as the internal aspect of them. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've, what, committed lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Okay? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this about the Ten Commandments. Uh, Was it on there? It's not on there. Well, let me read it to you. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. That's the reality. We break these commandments every day in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.20 says what? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We cannot be just, we cannot be declared righteous in God's sight by doing these. Because number one, we can't. Do you realize that you can't keep God's law? Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? Cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this is talking about lost people. A lost person without the Holy Spirit cannot submit to God's law and cannot please God. And as a matter of fact, if you rely upon the Ten Commandments as your standard, listen to what Galatians 3, 10 says. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here's the problem. If you break just one of the commandments in thought, word, or deed, you're under a curse. Because James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Okay, so why am I bringing up all this bad news? You can't keep the law. You can't keep the law. You can't keep the Ten Commandments. The law is meant to drive us to a point of desperation that there's no way we can work for our salvation. There's no way we can earn our salvation. There's no way we can be 100% perfect 100% of the time keeping all the Ten Commandments. There's no way we can do it. We need to be like the Israelites... Okay, so sinful Israel, let's just put sinful you, okay? Sinful you and me, okay? Sinful us. I'll include myself in that too because I'm sin. Holy God. Has anything changed between our sin and a holy God? From the time of the Israelites, 
Now, has human nature changed from the Israelites to us? Yes. Human nature? No. No, okay. Times have changed, but human nature hasn't. Has God changed? No. Okay. What's the one thing that's changed? Is Moses our covenant mediator? Who's our covenant mediator now? Jesus is our covenant mediator. He's a better, way better covenant mediator than Jesus. So that's why we need Jesus, the better Moses, to be our covenant mediator, our go-between. And Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. through For there is one God, holy, righteous God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Now, what I want us to do now is jump out of the book of Exodus and jump into the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the law. They were tempted to go back to the Ten Commandments. They were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. They were tempted to go back to all the things that happened in the Old Testament instead of trusting in Christ as better. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the word better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. We have a better, newer covenant. So, let's read Hebrews 3.3. 3. Hebrews 3.3. 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the greater covenant mediator. Now, Moses was sent by God to deliver Israel out of slavery. He was a deliverer, right? Moses was called to bring the law to Israel. He was a preacher. Moses was called to pray for the people. He was an intercessor. Moses was called to lead the people. He was a leader. So, in essence, the greatest character in the Old Testament, maybe next to King David, you put, you put Abraham, Moses, and David up there, are probably the top three. Moses was the preacher, the priest, the leader, the covenant mediator. He was the Jewish hero, if you will, of the people in even Jesus' day. And the writer of Hebrews comes on and says, Jesus is greater than Moses because he's the mediator of the new covenant. What's the Old Testament called? The Old Covenant. We have a new covenant. Let me just ask you some questions about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was made up of what? Goats, bulls, animals, sacrificial system, a priesthood, 
a physical temple, a physical tabernacle, washings and cleansings and getting the shellfish out of your house and the mildew and everything in the old covenant was, was that permanent? It was what we call a type and shadow. It was a type and shadow to point us to the new covenant. And so what we're going to look at here in Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 7, is how Jesus is, has instituted the new covenant in his blood. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus here, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things to come. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, Jesus is seated in heaven right now as the King of kings and Lord of lords. As a prophecy of Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so what the writer here is saying is that Jesus is far superior. Let me go back here. Jesus is far superior than all the Old Testament priests because he rose again and he's doing his ministry in heaven as the high priest, not from earth. Now, look at verse 5. Everything that was happening in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. What he's saying there is that the Old Covenant sacrificial system was ordained by God to work for that specific time, that specific place in redemptive history, but it was only a type and shadow picturing what God intended to be real and final in the atonement, Jesus Christ. And so in that period of time, in the Old Testament, with the Ten Commandments and the law, in that period of redemptive history, it was God's sovereign plan to have a Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, holy of holies, tabernacle, Day of Atonement, it was the Old Covenant. And as I said earlier, it was never meant to last forever. It was basically a temporary picture of a future reality that would be permanent, the New Covenant. That's why in verse 6 there it says, Christ obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than the Old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Jesus is a has a better promise, a better covenant than all that stuff that happened in the Old Testament. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Okay? Let's go to chapter 9 of Hebrews. 
chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, let's start in verse 6, actually. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, what in the world is that going, what's happening here? Now, sometimes Hebrews is hard to understand. What the writer's saying here, okay, remember, I'm going to erase this for a minute. You guys remember in the Old Testament, tabernacle, temple, the temple was the permanent structure. Okay, what was inside the tabernacle? The very center. It was called the Holy of Holies. Okay, yeah, the Holy of Holies had the Ten Commandments. You had the bread of presence. Um, you had you know, Aaron's budding staff. Who was allowed into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. How many days a year was he allowed in there? One day a year. And he had to make sacrifices, right? Now, he had to wash himself. He had to prepare himself because was he perfect? He had to offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but also for himself. Okay, so the high priest would go in. There would be a lot of blood for himself, for the people. It was called the Day of Atonement. It was one day a year. It covered the sins of the people for how long? One year. Then what had to happen? Had to do it again. Now, this is something you may not know. What sins were covered on the Day of Atonement? Go back and read it. Unintentional sins. Verse 7. He offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So, if you committed, if you go back to the book of Numbers, they, they call it high-handed. That's kind of the old, the old way. High-handed, let's maybe reuse the word premeditated. High-handed, premeditated. Um, yeah, in ignorance. Yeah. So if you committed a sin and you didn't really know you committed the sin, that was covered. But if you committed a premeditated, high-handed sin... That was not covered on the Day of Atonement. For example, if you committed adultery, would that be covered on the Day of Atonement? If you murdered, would that be covered on the Day of Atonement? If you even broke the Sabbath? Okay. If you knowingly broke a law, were you covered on that day? Okay. Let's say that you accidentally forgot to clean a little spot of mildew out of your house in preparation for cleansing. Would that be covered? Probably because it was unintentional. So this whole system was really, when you think about it, inadequate to really deal with sin. Especially like deep sins, high-handed sins. So let me just kind of give this to you in four points here. Only the high priest had access to the Holy of Holies. So only one person out of all, like two or three million Israelites, who, who's the only one that had access? One guy. Okay. It only happened once a year. 
Since the high priest himself was a sinner, he needed to atone for himself as well as for the people. And only unintentional sins were forgiven. So here's the point. What does verse 9 say? According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that what? Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, what this Old Testament system was, it was only a temporary washing of sins, but never actually penetrated to the depth of our souls to cleanse us inwardly and deal with our guilty consciences. And they wanted to make sure that the high priest was honest. Was honest, yeah. Yeah. Could the Day of Atonement deal with issues of the heart? Could they get down and cleanse you from the inside out? It only really dealt with outward action, and even not just outward action, but unintentional outward action. Okay. Now, let's talk about the law for a moment. Every one of the Ten Commandments, there's an outward action, but there's also the internal thing of the heart. So let's say that you're an Israelite, and you did not commit murder, you did not commit adultery, you did not commit, um, you didn't lie, and you, let's just pick four, and you didn't steal. Okay? And maybe you didn't use God's name in vain. Okay? So you did not do those things. According to the Day of Atonement, you're good on outward action for a year. But what does Jesus say about murder? If you hate somebody in your heart, it's as if you've murdered them. Is the Day of Atonement going to cover anger in your heart? Is the Day of Atonement going to cover lust? Is the Day of Atonement going to cover coveting? No, it's, not, it's, in, it's inadequate. So what we need is to understand the nature of sin. We oftentimes think in terms of sin as outward actions. I've told you guys about fruit sins and root sins, haven't I? I've talked about that a lot. So... Let me draw this up here. So here's a tree. Here's the root system of the tree. Here's the branches of the tree. Big old tree up here. Here's the ground. Okay, up here you've got adultery. You've got lying. You've got stealing. You've got murder. You've got all the outward actions that are easy to see, right? But what's really the root that caused... So here's the fruit... Here's the root. What under, what's lying underneath the surface that causes those outward sins to happen? Okay, so you've got lust. You've got pride. You've got greed. You've got envy. You've got selfishness. Okay, all these root sins down there. When we talk about... Is there a difference between sin, singular... And sins, plural. Yes. Why do you commit sins, plural? Because you are born in sin. It's your nature. Okay? So let's understand the nature of sin in three aspects. 
We sin by outward action. That's, that's easy to see. Those are the ones that we can easily identify. Those are what we call the, the fruit sins. Outward action. Colossians 3, 5-6 gives some outward actions. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, do you see both outward and inward sins in that list? What's the outward sin? Sexual immorality. What's the inward sin? Impurity, evil desire, passions. Okay? So outward actions, that's the easy stuff. Okay, yeah, we know, you know, I'm not going to murder. I'm not going to lie. I can, I, these are the ones that easily check off to say I'm, I'm good. Okay? The outward actions. But there's also a, a second aspect of sin. We sin by inward attitude and desires. These root sins. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27-28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery, outward action, fruit sins. But I say to you, everyone who looks at woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust. Okay? So, here's the thing, guys. We have outward sins, or what we call fruit sins. We've got root sins, what we call inward sins. But you've got to go all the way back to the beginning and say, how did those get there? So here's the most fundamental aspect of it all. Number three, we actually sin both inwardly and outwardly because we've inherited a sin nature from birth. It's our nature to sin. You cannot help but sin as a lost person. It's part of your nature. Now, as a saved person, we have a choice because we have the Holy Spirit in us, but everybody's born, as, as David says, Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we're conceived in sin. Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin came into the world through Adam. We've inherited that sin nature. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thought. And he's gonna, Jesus is going to mix both root sins and fruit sins here. See if you can. All right, let's just go down his list and see if we can categorize them, okay? Evil thoughts. Is that a root sin or a fruit sin? Okay. Sexual immorality. That's kind of both, I think. Okay, it just depends on how you... Theft. Outward. Outward. Okay. Murder. Okay. Adultery. Coveting. Inward. Okay. Wickedness. Deceit. Or it could be out. It could be lying. Deceit. Inward and outward. Sensuality. Okay. Envy. If it leads to stealing. Okay. Slander. Outward pride and um, foolishness. Hello, <laughs> is that the walkie walkie talking? Yeah. Oh, okay. Who knows? So foolishness, just a catch-all. Foolishness can be inward and outward, depending on what you do. That's foolish. <laughs> okay. All these evil things come from where? From within, and they defile a person. Why do they come from within? Because we are born that way. Jeremiah 17, 9. 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? And also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can an Ethiopian wake up one day and say, I want to have fair skin. No matter how hard he tries, he can say, I really, really, really want to have fair skin. What's going to happen? Unless he does like a Michael Jackson thing and tries to <laughs> manufacture it. Okay, can a leopard wake up one day and say, I don't want to be a leopard, I want to be a monkey. Or I don't want to have spots, I want to have stripes. Okay, why can't they change? That's the, they That's the way they were born. An Ethiopian was born with his skin color, you were born with your skin color. A leopard's born a leopard. Okay, so, so what's the analogy? You can't change your nature. What's the next thing he says there? Then, can you also do good who are accustomed to evil? And the answer is, you can't change your nature. You can't change your nature. You are born sinful. And Paul says it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work at the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So here's the issue when it comes to the cross. It's very, very important. When it comes to Jesus and what he did on the cross, not only do we need an atonement that takes away individual and personal sins, outward, inward, root, fruit, but we also need an atonement to cleanse us from the pollution of what's called original sin, the actual sin nature and the day of atonement can never get down the day of atonement can never get down to the root and even the fruit it really couldn't get if you were like it didn't really even cover half the fruit sins and it definitely the day of atonement in the old testament didn't take away somebody's didn't get to the root of who they are where god could cleanse them from the inside out that's why the old testament sacrificial system was temporary it was a type and shadow. What we need is something better, more complete. And that's why I look at verse 10. Until the time of Reformation. The Reformation. Now, we just celebrated Reformation Day. That's not what it's talking about there. The Reformation. I don't know if anybody has a different word in their Bible. It's an interesting word in the Greek text in verse 10 at the very end. All this was going to happen until the time of the Reformation. Really what that means is the time when Jesus would show up and institute the new covenant in His blood, and die on the cross, and take care of both root sin and fruit sin, and your nature through a once and for all atonement that didn't have to be repeated year in and year out. And, and, and He didn't have to die for His own sins because He was sinless, like the high priest had to sacrifice for His own sins. So as we go through here, I want us to see seven glorious truths about the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see these in verses 11 through um, 28. Yeah, we're just next verse down, Hebrews 9. Yeah, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. Um, mine says the, the time of the Reformation. The time of the renewed order. The new order. I don't know if I like the new order. That kind of that was a good group in the '80s. I like the group New Order. Um, 
Yeah, Don and I really like that group. But the, New Order, does anybody else have a different translation besides New Order? Does yours say New Order? No, mine's Reformation. Reformation. J- Justin, what does yours say? Cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations. Yeah, until the time of... Well, are you talking about the end of verse 10? Right? Yeah, the end of verse 10. Okay, a better system. A better system, a reformation. Okay, and so the thing that what the writer's saying is all of the Old Testament was inadequate to get to the heart. And when Jesus died, he took care of not only your outward sins, but your inward sins and also your very nature. Because when you become a Christian, what happens to your nature? You become a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So let's read what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So start back in verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Okay, why is it it important the writer of Hebrews says he entered once for all? What was the Old Testament sacrifice system? Once a year, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Here's the first blessing Jesus did. First of all, he secured our eternal redemption once and for all. He secured it. Now, what does the word redemption mean? He secured a redemption. That word also, you can have the word ransom maybe show up. It's from the same pair of words in the original language. When the word redemption shows up, the word conveys buying or purchasing out of slavery. God redeemed Israel out of Egyptian slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb. Remember, that's how the Old Testament was. Jesus has bought or purchased us out of spiritual bondage by his own blood. Go back for just a moment and look at what we just read in Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Actually, look at verse 2. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who did what? Brought you out of where? The land of Egypt, a land of slavery or bondage. That's redemption. God redeemed Israel out of physical bondage by means of the Passover lamb. Jesus has rescued us out of spiritual bondage by the means of his own blood. Now, what did I say earlier? If you're going to live by the Ten Commandments and that's going to be your standard, what do you have to do in order to have... What do you have to do in order to not be under a curse if you're going to obey the Ten Commandments? Obey them perfectly. All who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. But what happened to Jesus? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed, there's that word, bought, purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve because we could never obey the law. And when he was hanging on the cross, he took that purchase, he purchased that, 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 um, that freedom for us. Um, Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption 
through His blood. What does that bring us? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Titus 2, 13 and 14. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us on the cross to do what? To redeem us, to buy us from all what lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. And Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were redeemed, you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not You weren't bought with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what were you bought with? You were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Old Testament could never do that. Only Jesus. And, and notice, notice the permanency of that. He secured an eternal redemption. He secured it. If Jesus secured something, what does that mean? He did it. What did He cry out on the cross? It is finished. He obtained it. An eternal redemption. Not an annual redemption that's going to have to be repeated over and over again, but an eternal redemption once and for all. Okay? Let's keep reading. Verse um, 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here's what Jesus did that the Old Testament could never do. Jesus purified our consciences and freed us to serve the living God. In other words, this purification that Jesus did on the cross is an inward cleansing of the whole person before the living God. Jesus didn't die just to take care of the outward sins and the inward sins, but to cleanse us in the very nature of our, of our sin itself. He went to the very root. The Old Testament can never cleanse from the inside out. And Jesus' death on the cross gets to the very nature and dead works. He, he cleanses us from dead works. Are the good works we do any good to God? What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? We've all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds, all our good works are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, in the Old Testament, God prophesied a day when this internal cleansing would take place, where God would get to the root of your heart and He would do this inward cleansing through Jesus. It was prophesied in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27. This is God speaking of what God was going to do in a future day, the day when Jesus came and when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Listen to what God says I will do. I, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be what? Clean from what? All your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and notice what he says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
We can't obey God unless we've got this cleansing that takes place. So when Jesus died on the cross, he finished the work and then he sends the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, we get this internal cleansing where we get a new heart. And because the Holy Spirit lives in us, he grants us the ability to now walk in obedience to the law because we can do it and we want to do it now, not to earn our salvation, but as a result. Okay, look at verse 15. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, here's the third thing Jesus has done for us. He's called us to receive an eternal inheritance reserved in heaven for us. You've got a inheritance. What does Peter say about this inheritance? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now, what type of inheritance? Peter gives three definitions here. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it's unfading. Where is it? It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus has called us to that. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us. He's called us out of, He's rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins all right let's keep reading let's go down to verse 24 in verse 24 jesus represents us in heaven before the very face of god for christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god on our behalf Where did Moses go? Moses went into the thick cloud darkness to represent the people before God. Jesus is in the very presence of the Father right now. On whose behalf? Can you get to the Father on your own? What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through So right now, Jesus is in heaven as our high priest. And what does it say there in verse 24? He's appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. He's representing us in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, on our behalf, he he, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. So right now as believers, think about this. As believers, the face of God, we have the blessing of having the face of the Lord shine upon us because of Jesus. What was the greatest blessing the Old Testament people wanted to have? They wanted to have the face of the Lord shine upon them. That's called the Aaronic blessing that Aaron gives in number 6. Um, oftentimes, this is sometimes a benediction that's often given at the end of worship services. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, What's the blessing? What's the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, in the Old Testament, the whole idea of God's face shining upon you was this blessing that God's smile was upon you, God's blessing was upon you. It was a metaphor for the face. The worst thing that could happen to you as Israelite was for God to what? Turn His face from you. Okay, that was, if God turned His face from you, you were no longer under God's blessing, you were under God's curse. So to be under God's blessing in the Old Testament was to have His face shine upon you. And what does Jesus do to us right now? He's there before the very presence of God on our behalf so that God's face will shine upon us as His people. All right? Verse 25, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages, this is Jesus, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the fifth blessing. What, he put away all our sin once and for all. He put it away. Now, what was the issue here? The high priest had to do what? Every year, go in there. And he had to sacrifice even for himself. And, and the word there is put away. That word in the original language, the Greek, to put away means to annul or to abolish publicly. To get rid of your sin once and for all. To get rid of it. 1 John 3, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. Once and for all, He has put away your sin. Past, present, and future. We need to understand that because what will the devil try to confound us or confuse us with? There must be a sin that Jesus didn't pay. If you, if, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't have done that sin, and Jesus must not have died for that sin. So don't even bother going to Him and asking for forgiveness because um, you're, you're, you're out of luck. You've sinned one too many times. Can you sin, if you're a Christian, can you sin one too many times to get out of God's good grace? No, your sins were placed upon Jesus once and for all, past, present, and future. And that's what the sixth thing here. Jesus bore the sins of many once and for all. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, judgment, so Christ having offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is directly from Isaiah 53. Jesus will bear the sins of many. It's, it's directly from Isaiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53:12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. Mark 10:45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. 
First Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed. And then number seven, Jesus will return to save us from final judgment. When He appears the second time, He's not going to deal with sin, is He? He already dealt with it on the cross. What's He going to do? He's going to save believers and He's going to judge non-believers. But those of us whose sins have been judged in Christ on the cross, the second coming is a time of joy for us. And notice what it says. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. He'll appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Where's our citizenship? It's in heaven. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Okay. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Those are seven blessings that Jesus did on the cross. And then at the end of Hebrews, the writer takes us back to what we just saw in Exodus 19 and 20. What's the scene in Exodus 19 and 20? What do you have? I'm going to erase the tree here. And let's do, I'm, I'm, I'm in a drawing mood tonight. So um, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, what did you have? You had a what? You had a mountain. And what was coming out of the mountain? Smoke. And lightning. And darkness. And fire. And earthquake. And thunder, right? And where were the Israelites? They were not even allowed to touch the mountain. They're over here hiding in fear. Like, I don't even want to be near this. I know it's God, but Moses, you go talk to us. Okay, that's the delivering of the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments were delivered, fire, earthquake, thunder, shaking. Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 22, and let's look at how the writer of Hebrews takes us back there. Okay? Verse 18 of chapter 12, Hebrews. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You've not come to that. What's he talking about? that old Mount Sinai with the rumblings and thum- thunderings of the law, he says, you haven't come to that. How does verse 22 start? But, but you have come to where? You've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As believers, what do we have now? We have the new covenant. 
with a better mediator. You see, in the Old Testament, who was the mediator? Moses. And the, the law was thundering. The law was impossible. The law was crushing. The people didn't want to hear the voice of God. It was fire. It was darkness. It was, it was loud. It was fear. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's not us. We've got a new mediator, Jesus. We've got a new covenant, a better covenant. And we get to go directly into the presence of Jesus in Mount Zion, heaven, the new Jerusalem, with Jesus Christ face to face. That's what we get. Okay? Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 Jesus says this about the law, the Ten Commandments. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, let's understand this passage of Scripture, because what's he talking about? He's talking about the law, right? Which can be summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? I have not come to... What does abolish mean? I haven't come to get away with the law, but I've come to do what? Fulfill. So we've got to understand what that means. Okay. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills the law for us? It's been very controversial over the years and it's been misunderstood what, is it, what does it not mean? It does not mean that Jesus somehow added something to what had begun in the Old Testament. Like he, he added something new. What does he say? He fulfilled it. To fulfill means to carry out in the sense of giving full obedience to it. Jesus obeyed all the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed 100% of the time. Now think about that for a moment. Thought, word, and deed. All of it. Fulfilled it. If He had not, would He be qualified to go to the cross for us? No. And here's just a theological side note. Jesus accepted the full authority of the Old Testament as written Scripture. Notice he says not one jot or tittle. So here's the principle. Everything that the law and prophets, everything that the Old Testament pointed to was ultimately fulfilled through Christ in His life, His death, and His resurrection. So the question then becomes, how did Jesus fulfill that? How did He fulfill the law and the prophets? How did He do that? Well, Number one, he was born under the law in the virgin birth, in the incarnation, so that as the God-man, he could perfectly obey the law. He came as a human, fully God, fully man, so that he could live a life of obedience to that law. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So, 
the virgin birth and the incarnation means Jesus came in time and space to fulfill the law by living it out. And that, that's, that's the second thing we have here. Number two, he obeyed the smallest detail of the law in thought, word, and deed completely. We already looked at that 2 Corinthians passage about him having no sin, but um, let's look at Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is what? Without sin. So he lived a perfect life in obedience to every single one of the Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed. And third, Christ's death on the cross was enduring God's wrath against sin and paying the penalty prescribed in God's law that the wages of sin is death. Let's go back to that Galatians passage I read earlier. and Let's look at it fully again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, it's very important. We aren't saved by works of the law. We're not saved by obeying the Ten Commandments. How are we saved? By faith. Okay? Because if you try to earn your salvation by living according to the law, it's going to get you nowhere. Actually, it's going to crush you under a curse. The law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So his incarnation when he came in the virgin birth he was born in time and space as the god man number two he lived a perfect life in thought word and deed in obedience to the ten commandments and then he died to pay the penalty for breaking the law number four how else did he fulfill the law in all of who jesus is and has done he fulfilled all the old testament types and shadows that pointed to him the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all those laws are fulfilled in Jesus. And here's the last thing that's important for us too. He fulfills the law by sending the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we can have the power to obey the law. Romans 8, 2-4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, as we bring this to a close here, finally now, we've talked about the Ten Commandments. We know we can't keep them. They're so comprehensive of totality of life. What's our relationship to the Ten Commandments as Christians? Well, we're no longer under the law in a sense that it can in any way save us. The law was given as a schoolmaster or as a tutor 
to show us our helpless inability to actually keep it and to drive us to Christ for salvation. Galatians 3, 23 and 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So we talked about the first use of the law, the second use of the law, the third use of the law. Um, Let's just talk about this again. The first use of the law is for society to be um, lawful. God has given the Ten Commandments so that societies can be lawful, so people aren't stealing from each other, people aren't murdering each other. That, that just It keeps societies, it keeps cultures lawful, okay. just for everybody. The second use of the law is to drive us to despair, that we can't keep it and seek salvation. When you look at the Ten Commandments, it's like a mirror that you hold up to yourself and you realize, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this in thought, I can't do this in deed. No matter how hard I try to do these, I can't, I can't, I can't. No matter how hard I try to do it, my good deeds don't outweigh my bad deeds. I can't do it. So what do I need? I need a Savior. I need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. So the Ten Commandments don't save you. They show you your need to be saved. But the third use of the law is once you're saved... And once the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, He gives you the power to obey joyfully. You can obey Jesus. You can keep His commandments because the Holy Spirit is in you. So, as a rule for living, that's the third use of the law here, it's a good guide for life. In order to live in the blessing of God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still binding on Christians. 1 Timothy 1.8, Now the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Let me teach you guys a big theological word. It's called antinomianism. I don't expect you to remember it. It comes from two words, anti-nomos. You guys know what anti means, right? Against. Against. Nomos is the Greek word for law. Against the law. It's against the law. No. What an antinomian is, this is the attitude that people adopt who abuse grace in order to live sinful lives in regard to God's law. In other words, these are people that say, I've been saved by grace. I've been forgiven. I've got my free ticket to heaven. Now I can go live however I want because after all, God's going to save me. Once saved, always saved. I got my free ticket. I can go live however I want. Does the Bible allow you to get away with that type of attitude? Okay, let's read Romans 6, 1 through 4 because there's the answer. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. Should we just keep on sinning so that God keeps on forgiving? Paul says, by no means. Really strong in the original language. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says you can't do it. You can't adopt that attitude. So the third use of the law is we now as saved people with the Holy Spirit living inside of us joyfully obey the Ten Commandments because we have the power to do so. And when we fail, we still have the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because of the cross, but it's it's, it's not an excuse for us to live however we want. So here's the bottom line as we bring the Ten Commandments to a close. Before we begin to understand the Ten Commandments as our moral duty as Christians, we first need to understand what God alone has done for us in the gospel. He has entered into a covenant of steadfast love with His children. I'm the Lord your God. I'm the Lord. He has entered into a covenant relationship with us. He's delivered us from idolatry. He's brought us out of the house of Egypt, out of idolatry. He's also rescued us from the bondage to Satan and to sin by means of Christ's death on the cross. In the new covenant, he has written the law on our hearts, not on stone tablets, but in our hearts so that through the Holy Spirit, we can have the power to obey. And as regenerate, born-again believers, we now have the ability and the desire to obey the Ten Commandments, not to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude for what God has already accomplished in our salvation. Okay, let me show you this passage of Scripture. It's very important that you read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Because we oftentimes camp out on 8 and 9. <coughs> For by what? Grace. You've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a, result, not a result of works that no man may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepare Him that we should walk in them. What comes first in this passage of Scripture? Good works or salvation? Salvation. We're saved by grace through faith in order to live out good works that God prepared before what happens if you get the cart before the horse that day when the cult showed up at my house on that sunday afternoon and they were trying to tell me that salvation's by works and they were telling me all these things i had to do i took them to this passage of scripture and i said can you read this for me well they didn't want to read it and i said read and i said tell me the order here what comes first the good works that get you saved or the salvation and they argued they didn't want to deal with the passage and they kept taking me to other passages and I kept trying to tell them, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone in order to do good works. You don't do good works in order to get saved. You do good works as an outflow of your salvation. Because what does Jesus say in John fourteen fifteen? If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. What are the commandments? Well, we've got the Ten Commandments, but we also any, anything that Jesus tells us to do, if we love Him, we will do it. And what does 1 John 5, 3 say? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not what? Why are they not burdensome? Because we have the Holy Spirit in us to give us the power. Now, this is not on your sheet, but I want to take you to one last passage of Scripture that's an encouragement. Go to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2. And I want to show you a passage of Scripture. And I have to always bring us back to this because it balances us in understanding how to live the Christian life. So you got Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So let's read verse 12. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always what? Obeyed. So now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, what does this tell us to do? Obey, work out, live a godly life. Does that sound kind of scary to you? Obey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If all we had was verse 12, you'd be like Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. I don't know if I can do that. But thankfully, we have verse 13. What does verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's working in us to obey? God. And he's doing two things. He's working in us to will and to work or to act. What's the difference between willing and working? One is the ability, or one is the desire. One is the ability. So God working in you gives you the desire to want to obey. Is that enough, just the desire? It's a good start, but you can have the greatest intentions in the world. He not only gives you the desire, but he also gives you the ability. So let me state it in kind of a cheesy little slogan, okay? God gives you the want to, and God gives you the can do, <laughs> okay? God gives you the want to. He gives you the ability. He, he, he works in you to want to obey, and He works in you the ability to obey for God's good pleasure. So we have a responsibility to obey. We have a responsibility to live a godly life, but we're not left to ourselves. We're not left to our own devices. We have the promise in the gospel that... God works in us. And think about this, guys. God is working in you whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you see it or not. If you're a true child of God, God is working in you. And He's given you that desire and He's given you that power to obey. So at the end of the day, if there's any growth in godliness, who gets all the credit? God. You did it, but God did it through you because He gave you the desire and He gave you the ability. So you're not left on your own. We can, in a sense, as regenerate believers in Jesus Christ, because of His death on the cross, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can live out the Ten Commandments through His power working in us.